Welcome to Friday in this edition of DC Signal to Noise. I'm John Harris, News Director for Farm Journal. Joined as I am every Friday with, by Jim Wiesmeyer, Pro Farmers Policy Analyst. And uh, we need to mention, as always, Jim, if you're not uh, joining us live as we record this on Friday afternoon, we do this live at 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central every week on the AgriTalk Facebook page. And you can join in and ask questions as we go along. So if you're listening to the podcast, be sure next Friday to join us on the live broadcast on the AgriTalk Facebook page, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central. And for those who are joining us live, ask us questions as we go along here. Drop them in the comments as we uh, record the podcast here. And let's get right into it, Jim, because there's a lot to talk about in China in particular. Let's start there. Um, Well, you want to talk talks first or you want to talk corn first? Let's talk talks first, because uh, that was interesting. We saw a very aggressive tone by both countries, uh, China and the U.S., uh, I had the opportunity to listen to Max Baucus on Fox Business News just a brief time ago. He was the former U.S. ambassador to China under the Obama administration, so he knows China. And also when he was Senate Finance Committee chairman, of course, he knows trade issues. Uh, And he said uh, primarily he thought it was for domestic consumption in both countries, John, that they were talking to their old audience. Of course, Biden has to be seen as being aggressive towards China, uh, you know, following the Trump administration. And China, he says, uh, believes, uh, they actually believe that their system is better. And he said the same, one of the two uh, key Chinese officials who who was who was talking to uh, you know Secretary of State Tony uh, Blinken uh, lectured uh, him when he was in China, as well as he lectured uh, 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 Tony Blinken. So he he thought that uh, what he'll look for for the future, John, is some progress rather than uh, you know uh, you know feisty comments from both countries. And he listed the examples as of if China reopens their the uh, their consulate in Houston. And if they reopen a closed U.S. consulate in China. So that gives us a little barometer from a former U.S. ambassador to look to, to, to show some progress being made, John. Yeah, and the, as we talk here on Friday afternoon, it looks like those talks in Alaska are just a, at this hour wrapping up with, with nothing really uh, that we've heard of substantial coming out of them. Um, the U.S. took some very direct, made some very direct statements about China. Uh, the Chinese officials, as we discussed on AgriTalk this morning, uh, made a point of keeping cameras in the room while they went on a 15-minute rant about the United States. Um, so what is the signal we take out of that, Jay? Well, it's to figure going out where to, their posture is. It's going to be a, a contentious relationship. Uh, that's what it tells me. Now, that doesn't mean nothing can be accomplished. It's both sides are digging in for the long haul, especially China. They think in decades where we think in few year terms. I think that's part of the problem, John. But uh, um, let's just hope that it goes up from here because it was pretty uh, raw. uh, Because anytime you mention uh, human rights, as well we should to China, they take umbrage big time. And their core issues are Hong Kong, Taiwan, 
human rights and things like that. Don't meddle in our country because they'll come right back at you in Trump-like attitude of citing January the 6th or election fracas, uh, et cetera. So that's all out of the way right now. So maybe we'll, we'll, we'll see some progress in the months ahead. Was there any signal at all coming out of Alaska this week? The signal is that I got is that, you know, you know, venting that I guess needs to happen sometimes and, you know, you know, so be it, uh, you know, you know, let it go through. Uh, we may get some readouts later on or over the weekend of, of any, I don't think they're going to issue a statement that tells you a lot right there. Uh, because it was just a frank discussion. Uh, you know, both sides believe, you know, their policies and they, uh, you know, you know, they have their markers down. But also you've got two sides that haven't met together before. So they're both, I guess, sizing each other up and, and seeing, uh, seeing where each other will, will and won't go and uh, uh, then setting the strategy for future meetings. Although Tony Blinken is well known in the in 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 the diplomatic community, and you know, and so is our you know national security advisor. So I was I think that they're 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 you know getting their territory you know defined, and then don't cross these lines. And I guess to a degree that's needed. But I'll go with what Baca said. That made the most sense to me. Domestic consumption in China, domestic consumption here go from there, uh, you know, where we can find elements of, you know, cooperation, Extend, uh, continuing the phase one, uh, the second year of the phase one agreement, uh, maybe opening up some consulates in, in the months ahead, maybe working on shared issues such as climate change. I know China wants to uh, come over here April 22nd, Earth Day and be part of a big uh, rollout that I think the White House wants to do on Earth Day really? relative to carbon change. Yeah, and that would include agriculture. I think this is why, uh, you know, USDA is asking for comments by the end of April uh, on the concepts of, you know, climate smart policy. They were really general in their call for you know public comments probably as they should i think it's going to be 45 days yeah you know call for public comment and if history is any judge that'll be extended uh, the ag groups always like to extend you know calls for you know public comment but usda i think rightfully so wants as many options as they can get in in that call for public comment john i think that's a smart approach but nowhere in their uh, call for uh, uh, you know options did they mention the commodity credit corporation charter act relative to uh, you know carbon uh, uh, you know change policy i thought that was interesting from its omission that is very interesting because that's all we've heard is that uh, they want to use ccc money to to form some sort of a carbon bank um, and provide payments for carbon capture for farmers yeah um, it do you get a sense that USDA has been working with ag groups at all to, to, if you will, get ag groups to come forward with um, some some specific plans on how agriculture uh, addresses this carbon bank issue and, and addresses the larger climate issue? Absolutely. And not just the ag and commodity groups, the biofuel groups, because the biofuels industry sees this. I was out at that uh, oil seed products meeting where we had a number of renewable, you know, biodiesel, uh, you know, firms out there, big time biodiesel producers. And and the, they have a seat at the table and they see this as an opportunity for the years ahead to 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 for the next sector for the biofuels to to 
to work into, you know, the climate change strategy. The same thing can be said for, you know, corn-based ethanol, John, that uh, uh, absolutely they have been sounding, uh, you know, people out at USDA Energy Department, EPA, et cetera. And I was asked the question, uh, other than Secretary Vilsack at USDA, who who should they speak with, or uh, if they haven't, you know, spoken to him yet? I said Robert Bonney. He's exactly, the yeah. he's the expert guy on this one that Vilsack listens to. So uh, again, I, I'm glad that agriculture has taken more than two feet at that table, and because they have to be part of the process. Yeah, and it's really an opportunity here if they could all come, you know, have NCGA, ASA, the biofuels groups. Uh, wheat growers, sorghum growers all come together with a definitive plan, but I don't know that they've got enough information yet um, uh, to, to form a definitive uh, united plan that they could take to USDA. Yeah, I agree. This is why, you know, Colin Peterson last week told us, uh, you know, how do you measure carbon? How do you price carbon? Uh, now, I'm going to be writing next week a little bit more on how Canada's approaching this. Sean Haney on AgriTalk has, has told us a lot so far, but that may be, it's just not maybe, it's just one approach to it. But we really have to have some issues defined here. And as Vilsack said a few weeks ago, this is not going to happen in one administration. It could very likely take several administrations. And, and I think that's a solid timeline. That doesn't mean you don't do anything, which I tell of you know, farm groups in my speeches look very carefully at pilot projects, pilot programs, because that's where uh, certain groups uh, in different regions of the country can maybe test uh, uh, a strategy, John, because in farm programs, that's how we initially got the Conservation Reserve Program. It started really as a pilot project many years ago. So those are the things we have to work out. But all I know is President Biden wants to get this thing going. Uh, first timeline to me is Earth Day, and then near the end of the year, I think in November sometime, that uh, uh, United Nations uh, you know, summit uh, on, on climate change. So we have some marks coming up here that we can at least assess progress or lack thereof on this topic, John. But, you know, for biofuels, you know, they, they, they you know, USDA is asking, um, how it should use the programs of funding, financing, uh, how to boost biofuels for the transportation you know, sector, uh, sustainable products in that, uh, renewable natural gas from livestock, biomass, you know, power, solar and wind, all that. So they have a rather general approach in their questions and they want the respondents to fill into the, you know, to fill in the blanks. Yeah, and it's good now that we actually, because we talked about this last week, it's nice that we actually have the process and at least know how it's moving forward now. Absolutely. Yes, at least we know the generalities. And then uh, maybe on Earth Day, they announce some principles uh, that that they're going to ascribe to. That's probably, I think, the best we're going to be able to get. I don't think you're going to have anything definitive for agriculture, not at that time. It just This town just doesn't move that fast. Yeah, indeed. Well, we took a little bit of a turn there away from China. Let's head back to China for a little sure. bit and because there is another side to that story. And even though things were very contentious in those talks, their first face-to-face -face talks there in Alaska, you still got China making very significant corn buys this week. Oh, absolutely. Over 3.8 million tons of corn 
uh, John, that's about right, right around 153 million bushels. And so that's a chunk of corn for one week. Now, the market was very tepid about it. But as we as we said during what, a month, you know, two months ago, this was being built into the marketplace that that the uh, exporters and importers in China, they get coverage uh, first and then uh, they can hide, if you will. I don't know whether that's the right word. Uh, the daily export sales reporting system, uh, they can game it a little bit. But by the time they're announced, uh, I think most of these, if not all uh, of the sales have been covered. But when you look at the total uh, sales on the books, not just to China, all origins for U.S. corn, and then the outstanding sales, export commitments, you know, they're almost at USDA's total U.S. corn export forecast. So that tells me, uh, unless some of this is not going to get shipped to China uh, near the end of the year, uh, because we've got a lot on the books to ship, USDA's corn export number for 2021 appears too low, John. So we could have lower carryover coming out in, in, the, in the future WASDs. And it also shows, I don't like to browbeat USDA too much, but they have it coming on this one. Uh, remember last year, they held uh, with that 7 million metric ton forecast of uh, total China corn imports. Uh, and then they it took a month to get into the reality area. They right. didn't even listen to the U.S. ag attache, who was at 20 to 22 million tons for at least a few months before USDA's world board changed. And so that that was, it, I think it's the big, biggest miss on a forecast from the world board that I've seen in, in my career. And I, I hear about this when I go out and speak, John. Uh, these are analysts. These are farmers. Uh, they're saying, you know, what's happening at USDA on the forecast front? Uh, particularly, I would say on the, on the WASDE side over the, uh, the, the NAS side, the, or the world board seems to be in particularly uh, disconnected from the news that we keep getting out of China. Yeah, well, they were. Now with Seth Meyer as top economist, I know he'll, I think he'll bring them into the more reality, you know, circle. Uh, but I heard some pointed criticisms on the crop, uh, grain stocks and cotton estimates and corn really? and bean estimates over the last two years from industry people. Oh, I mean, it. USDA has a problem for on the credibility side. And again, I want to stress, I do not like saying this uh, when they ask me what's going on in NAS. Uh, I, I don't feed into the conspiratorial circle that says, oh, did they have a political agenda? Except absolutely no. not. These are statisticians who want to do a good job. Something is awry with some of the numbers. On grain stocks, I like to point out that it was the commercial stocks that they missed on, not the on-farm stocks. So I think NAS needs to go back and look uh, why in the commercial sector uh, they, they were fooled. And on the crop estimate side, corn, soybeans, and a big miss in cotton as well, uh, they have to look in, and not just they, I think they need an outside board and not just academics to look at the you know, procedures again. You, you have to do that every every decade or so, every few decades or so, uh, John, uh, because are they using the right tools? Do they need more funding? Do they need personnel, et cetera? Because the, those misses were pretty large. And all those things were addressed in that study done by the American Farm Bureau Federation and the suggestions that they made um, in in changes uh, to NAS moving forward. Yes. Um, 
but you, back to China though, you, you you talked about that you know if if those numbers uh, that they're going to eventually re reflect into tighter grain stocks, well, there's not much wiggle room left there in corn or soybeans for that matter. Not for uh, soybeans. Soybeans, well, you're down to rust pipeline rust right. levels in the pipeline. So that's but on why the corn the side, there's not a whole lot of wiggle goosing. room either. Yeah. I'm so, yeah. Well, we're going to have a fight for acreage. Uh, pro yeah. farmers, not, yeah, they are out with their acreage numbers. I would go to profarmer.com to see, uh, you know, you know, pro farmers acreage uh, survey for both corn and soybeans and the other crops. They they show uh, obviously increases in both, but uh, more of an increase for corn than I think the market is has has factored in. You know, right now I think a little over two million uh, acres uh, and almost seven million for soybeans. But I I don't have the numbers in front of me. But go to profarmer.com on that. But you're going to have a competition for acres, and that's always a good sign uh, if you're a grain producer to uh, you know to get price appreciation and. And especially when you look at those crop insurance guarantees, uh, John, that we've talked about uh, yeah. uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, farmers are, are going to plant as much as the, uh, the weather, I think, allows them. Yeah, and well, and we're going to see USDA's estimate on their planning intention, planning intentions report next week, um, which probably isn't going to end up to be right in the, in the end, because that's going to uh, be kind of a, a, an opening salvo in those bidding wars for acres. Uh, absolutely. But the, and we're in the fledgling of a demand pole markets uh, led by China. And so we've got some positives going on in the business of agriculture, not just the grains. I mean, look at the hog market that has come back uh, significantly with the big China buys. We don't know the full story relative to African swine fever in China. Most people uh, do not believe the information coming out of China uh, that that their their hog, uh, hog, hog counts uh, continue to be negatively impacted by, you know, different variances of the ASF. And uh, that could be why uh, you had the 17-month low, John, this week in soybean crush uh, be, because of the less demand. And that could be the initial indication here of price and demand rationing. This is what the, the oilseed industry told me, uh, you know, when I was in Tucson uh, uh, earlier this week. Now, that doesn't mean the, 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 you know, the bull, the, you know, fledgling bull market is over, but it's an initial indication of one bell going off that price is having an impact on demand. Yeah, well, but um, the pork industry, the beef industry as well, but I think the pork industry is leading it, seeing demand ramp up for restaurant use faster than they had anticipated, um, which is, is, I think you sense it, I know I sense it, this this sense of an enthusiasm uh, about finally coming out of the uh, the coronavirus lockdown, you know, whether we're doing it too soon or not is, is something we can certainly debate, but you know, despite what the CDC is saying, I think people are ready to get out there, get into restaurants and and get back to some little bit of sense of, of life that they had before the coronavirus. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it's any time too soon. I will tell you on my flights to and from Tucson, Arizona, I had to go through, thank goodness, Atlanta and not Denver because of the snow. Mm -hmm. uh, they were almost filled on, on all flights, except the one coming back later on on tuesday from atlanta to uh you know dallas airport and uh delta uh, thank goodness doesn't seat the middle seats but they they take really good you know precautions uh on their flights and at the meeting that i attended uh they wore the mask 
uh, and they had different colors on your armband of how you wanted to deal with other people at the conference. If you really? were comfortable with shaking hands, you got a yellow band. If you wanted to rub uh, arms, it was a different color. I I had not seen that at a at a at a meeting before, but I'll tell you, I saw more than a few restaurants. Uh, opened up the the airports in Atlanta was just really a lot more people than I would have thought. So, uh, and you're seeing some of these numbers come out and, uh, you know, articles in the Wall Street Journal. I experienced it. But the one negative I saw on my trip, John, was vivid to me. It took me 45 minutes at the Tucson airport to get a taxi, to get an Uber, a Lyft. Tucson, or- wow. Tucson, then that's a little over 500,000, you know, population. Yeah. And then coming back after I gave my speech, I thank goodness I had some time to get back to Tucson. It was an hour. In fact, they had to call a VIP taxi service for me. And I asked the attendants there, I said, why is this? And both of them, uh, the, you know, the young guys who were good, Puny and Brad were their names. I'm giving them (laughs) high marks because they helped me out big time to get back to the Mm. airport. Uh, they told me it was a, it was primarily a factor of uh, a lot of Uber and Lyft people weren't working because they were getting those unemployment, uh, you know, uh, extra benefits. I, that's oh, anecdotal, really? but that's what I was told. And I experienced uh, this the first time I've ever seen that with Lyft or Uber. I just couldn't get them. Oh, wow. That, that's, that's really interesting. I, hmm. Uh, but I, I um, back to this notion of, of coming back, I think, you know, we talked about this morning. You've had two shots now. You're fully vaccinated. I've had the first shot. I get my next shot uh, beginning of next month. Um, but there is, uh, speaking for myself, there is this sense of uh, it's a big step back to normalcy. And, and my wife and I, she's had the, the first shot as well. And, you know, we've we've take it, you know, accepted the risk of going out and eating out a couple of times now that we haven't done. Oh, in yeah, a year. you can see it. Yeah. And it's an uplifting feeling. Last week, yeah. I felt like a gopher coming out of a hole. You can see it in the spirit of people and just, they're just happier, things like that. But now we, we've got to get uh, uh, some of these products into stores if you want to buy, you know, we, we've had the uh, almost up to four and a half trillion dollars spent over the last uh, uh, year, uh, John, on on the aid uh, programs. That's a lot of money, a lot of money. And as we said last week, this latest $1.9 trillion, that's more than China's entire, uh, uh, Canada's entire economy. But we've got dislocations in a number of industries. I've told you, I've been remodeling my home and I had another month delay in getting a countertop gas uh, uh, grills. Uh, So now I ordered them in early December last year and now they're not going to be here. At least the latest forecast is middle of April. So you know, it just, this system's out of whack right now, but that's multitude, not just uh, housing products, but you're having backups at the California ports and and, uh, elsewhere. And and that could become a major problem once people get uh, more confident that they don't have to save uh, their uh, COVID uh, aid money and want to spend it because we've seen an increase of a 
about $1.8 trillion in additional savings. And ironically, that's mm-hmm. the same amount of funding that's in, you know, the uh, uh, you know latest package, John. Yeah, yeah, that that is interesting. That and you know, while it's good to see debt to go down, it's it's not what the intention was of that stimulus package. It was to get money circulating back in the economy. But to your point, there are instances where people want to do that, but they simply can't because the products aren't available. Products aren't available, and they're still they were uncertain as far as their jobs. So you tend to hold yeah. back. So once you, but now the economy, you know, look at the 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 bond markets. Now, uh, we had the Federal Reserve this week had an FOMC meeting, Federal Open Market Committee. And then we had a presser uh, by uh, Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve Chairman, and they're just not seeing any major indication of inflation ahead. A growing number of people, not all, but a growing number of pretty sharp analysts are are starting to naysay the Federal Reserve, and they think uh, the Federal Reserve may be overreaching. If that's the case, I think you had uh, 10-year Treasury bills almost at 1.8 percent. Uh, boy, if you get to two percent, the the Bank of America uh, survey said this week that that'll lead you into a correction in the uh, S and P 500. At least that's what they put out, you know, this morning. But uh, uh, we're going to see in the next few months. The Federal Reserve thinks the inflationary bump up here is transitory. But uh, there's a number of smart people out there who thinks that they're getting too close to the Biden administration and uh, they're not as independent as they used to be. I hope that assessment is wrong, John, because we don't want the Fed having to chase uh, inflation again. I'm not talking about next week, next month, et cetera. But boy, once that, uh, if, if they lose control here, interest rates could go up a lot sooner and faster than people think. Well, and also it's it's so segmented um, because as, as you know, you uh, recounted for about your experience with the stovetop, uh, office supplies, those things. We are seeing inflation just because there's no availability. Um, whereas you know certain staples that don't have the supply issues, you're not seeing that inflation at least not yet. So it it, it makes it a little bit harder to to gauge just what is that availability issue and what is general inflation. Yeah, and workers. I mean, not just only in agriculture, and we can bridge into the immigration reform bills uh, yeah. you know, in a bit here now, but in the housing market, we're at a multi-year low on the number of new homes even uh, yeah. available. So you've got your home real estate market on fire right now. So it's definitely a seller's market, but go try to buy a new house and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to be <laughs> a rude away. Oh, yeah. it, it's good. The, the, there's not much available out here and good luck in DC to find a home. I mean, I saw a Washington, you know, post story today that said, you know, you, you it's, it's, it's hard to find a new home uh, out here uh, in the district. Now I'm out here in the, in the, in the Virginia suburbs and there's a, a few more, but it, it's, uh, it's the same thing. You cannot find the right number of people to do drywalls, to do the real thing that you need to get a a new home uh, going. And so I think that's going to be a problem. Then we can connect the dots here. Uh, They're even talking about raising some taxes. Uh, And that could happen sooner than people think, too. So we've got some issues here that are kind of getting us in the murky area, John, John, for the economic outlook ahead. But it's going to be rosy between now and the end of the year, no matter what. That's what the market's saying to us. 
Hmm. Yeah, and I would urge folks to go back a few episodes. We talked about some of the implications of those those uh, uh, possible tax increases, uh, specifically on agriculture. Um, and go back at, on agweb.com and look at some of Paul Neifer's columns. He's got some some great breakdown on that as yeah. well. In fact, um, well, that's what we're talking about, Paul. Let's give a little tease here. You talked sure. to Paul D for this morning, didn't you? Yeah, he had, I thought, don't know whether it was his first podcast, not yet out officially, but uh, he he talked with me for about a little over 30 minutes. Uh, he had the timeline down pat. He's going to begin his podcast, what, for Top Producer, I believe, beginning in it's gonna early be associated April? With, uh, yeah, early April, going to be associated with Top Producer. Um, in fact, we're going to have Paul on here to talk about it and answer your questions. Uh, he's the farm CPA, um, brilliant guy talking about farm finances and, and, and tax implications for farmers. Um, and it's going to be an interesting podcast. It starts up. So uh, keep watching here for more details on that, but also be watching for the Farm CPA podcast coming in early April. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about the uh, two uh, immigration bills that made it out of the House yesterday, Jim. There's the Farm Workforce uh, Modernization Act, which we've talked about the last few weeks, which is the most of the most importance to agriculture, most significantly because it opens up the H-2A program for year-round ag workers. Um, which, uh, of course, is uh, is of high importance to the dairy industry, uh, as we talked about with Paul Bleiberg a few weeks ago, um, also the uh, hog industry. Um, and then there was also a bill passed that would open a path to citizenship for uh, dreamers, those who were um, uh, brought over as minors um, and then have grown up in the United States. Um, yeah, but, let's do some numbers. On the first one, on the Dreamers, only nine Republicans joined all Democrats in favoring that right. bill. And on the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, 30 Republicans joined all but one Democrat. But the last time the House passed a similar bill on the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, there were 34 Republicans who voted for it. Not that big of a difference, but it was it was fewer Republicans. I think that's a signal, John. I really do. Yeah. And, and so was, I mean, <laughs> as you and Carla Tiemann made it abundantly clear on AgriTalk this morning, Carla Tiemann from uh, the Russell Group, uh, this really doesn't stand much of it. Neither one, neither bill stands much of a chance once they get over to the Senate. In fact, uh, the Farm Workforce Modernization Act was passed in the House in 2019 um, didn't get a hearing in the Senate. It'll pro with uh, Democrats in control of the Senate. It'll probably get a hearing, won't it? But it's probably not going to get much farther than that. Oh, it's going to get a hearing, and it'll be introduced, I think, as soon as next week by a bipartisan, you know, senators. Uh, so I would look forward to that. But you had two important senators from two different parties this week. Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, said there's no pathway for anything right now relative to immigration reform. And he used that the migrant surge at the southern border is straining the U.S. resources and the attitudes toward this on the Republican side. Then you had Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin, Democrat from Illinois. He did acknowledge the situation at, at the border is complicated the prospect, you know, prospects for any bill, uh, you know, comprehensive or the more narrow legislation that we talked about in those two, you know, measures, the Dreamers bill and, and, and the Farm Modernization Act. But as we talked about on AgriTalk this morning, these two bills could actually, particularly the Farm Worker Modernization Act, addresses some of the 
background problems that are causing some of the issues at the border right now. So why wouldn't you take it up and, and try to resolve some of those issues um, and ease that, that crisis at the border? I think that they should. Now, we'll see what if we can get the current, uh, call it what you want, a challenge or a crisis at the southern border. Once that uh, gets better, okay, I don't know how long. Now, uh, the uh, consensus this morning on AgriTalk that it wouldn't happen this calendar year uh, in Congress. But I, I, I'm going to give it a little time to breathe uh, because if if they put up the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, uh, there'll be a few Republicans who will still sign off on that. So I think the hardest thing is to get it to a vote in the Senate. But as you said, the uh, the the Democrats control the Senate, and and as Pelosi said on the House side, you only need fifty plus one uh, on in in that to to really get it going. If they weave it into somehow into the Budget Reconciliation uh, Act, can, so can I, they, I, can they I, move well, that? Can they do that through bucket? I've I've heard both sides. I really think that there's some problems there, but well, yeah. uh, she she said it, so I don't know what angle she's got in front of her. But I will tell you something to look for in the Senate. If they allow Republicans true amendments uh, on the Senate floor, and if they don't, watch Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, and and, and Kristen Sinema, uh, uh, you, know, you know, Kristen Sinema from Arizona, you know, Democrat, because they'll balk uh, at that. They they want a truly bipartisan effort for some controversial bills. Now, not all in agriculture favor the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, but you know, that's the beauty of having potential amendments to make it better. A number of Republicans voted in favor of it, hoping that the Senate uh, would offer amendments to make it even, you know, better. So I, I, I think I would watch this. Don't give up totally, but the atmosphere in this town relative to uh, the immigration issue uh, because of the lack of control at the border. We do not have border control right now. I, I think the numbers clearly show that, and that'll doom anything, John, because this goes back. I know we're going to have uh, you know Senator Chuck Grassley on AgriTalk on Monday, and I hope Chip asking the fate of, uh, of immigration reform in the Senate, because Grassley remembers the last time we had major you know, immigration reform was under the Reagan administration, where they uh, offered amnesty for millions of, of illegal you know, people at that time. And he said once only. Grassley remembers that. So he's going to want to, he and a number of other Republicans want to see significant efforts taken to secure the border. And the Democrats are not there yet. I, I, I have to be fair on that. They're not there yet for whatever reason. Yeah, and I, I think there there is going if this is going to advance, there has to be a discussion uh, on border security in addition to orderly immigration, um, which which both need to be uh, taken up in, in this discussion. Um, you said that Republicans are going to be looking for amendments. We talked to G.T. Thompson, uh, ranking member of the House Ag Committee, a couple of weeks ago. He said he's looking for amendments on this, specifically yes. on uh, getting rid of the the government requirements on how many workers. Uh, farm operation can yes. have and also requirements on wages for those. So th there will be at least attempts at Republican amendments 
uh, in this as it moves forward, if it yeah. moves forward. And the other angle that we discussed in AgriTalk is the humanitarian crisis uh, that from a number of Latin American countries. Yeah, these people do for threat of being killed or whatever in a number of countries. This is what this country is great for, 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 for the masses to, uh, you know, survive. And so th that's called a dilemma. Uh, you know, on yeah. the one hand, you want to have uh, help, of, you know, for... Uh, humanity but on the other side you have to have a transparent uh, you know strategy with a balanced strategy but we're lacking the balance right now maybe we can get there yeah exactly all right you brought up senator grassley shall we go down that that sure. rabbit hole right sure. now all right sure. <laughs> tell us about this poll that uh, happened in iowa over senator grassley's future well, a poll that uh, the Des Moines Register had, you know, commissioned uh, for them, uh, rather significantly gave the signal, uh, more than 50%, uh, told Grassley uh, that uh, they didn't think that he should run again. Now, it's going to be curious. I can imagine how Grassley's going to react to that poll. Uh, so I know Chip will ask him that on Monday. But uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, those polls uh, from the Des Moines Register, uh, th they've been proven fairly accurate, John, as far as the feelings on the part of uh, Iowans. You, you saw that relative to the you know, last presidential election and, and other races. So if, if Grassley doesn't run, who, who would run on the Republican side? And then if, uh, who would be his challenger? And we talked a little bit that on AgriTalk. Uh, and before we go down that road, let, yeah. let's, let's get into the, the whys of this. Do you, do you get a sense that it's mostly because of age or are there other issues why Iowans would not want to see Chuck Grassley run for a, another six year term? I think two things, the, the age, but also to give other, another person a chance. And, and I think that's always a hard one to deal with for any lawmaker. Because as they were coming up as a younger person, you you do want a changing of the guard to to let not just young equals uh, uh, you know, better. Uh, God forbid, no. Uh, but yet you you do want a you know different approach every once in a while, and it's you got to know when to go. It's just like in baseball a lot. You got to know when to pull back, even though you're at prime level. Even though, as Grassley will say, he walks every day, he can run, etc. I don't think that's the issue in the survey that I showed. Uh, it's the, the concern about the age because uh, he'll be what? If he fulfilled his, his another six-year term, would he be 95, I think? Yeah, he'd be he, well into his 90s, yeah, anyhow. Yeah, well into his 90s. And, you know, my line has always been, I, you know, all great men are dead and I don't feel well myself. You know, <laughs> I know how I feel and I'm younger than Grassley. <laughs> but uh, he's a different character. Yeah, but so, you and I aren't in the shape that, that no, Chuck Grassley's we, in. Definitely not. Definitely not. No, he's in very good shape. So yeah. we'll let Grassley speak for himself on AgriTalk. But the but the concept is there uh, in, in Iowa that maybe we love you, Senator Grassley, but it's time for a different approach. Well, and, and we got into this this morning on AgriTalk. There's a pretty good bench on both sides in Iowa that could potentially step up into that seat. Oh yes, yeah. You have on the on the uh, 
uh, on the Republican side, his what nephew, you know, Grassley's nephew. You have, although nothing's been announced, uh, Bill Northey could come in, and and other and, and other people in 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 Iowa on the, on the Republican side, on the Democratic side, uh, we had a few weeks ago on I think it was on AgriTalk, Representative uh, Axney would not rule out a run. Uh, yeah. There's been a little chatter. Would Secretary Vilsack want to run for it? And then we heard on AgriTalk this morning that it may be his wife uh, that runs, you know, for that. You know, I think that was said about three quarters in jest, but not completely in jest. Well, she's tried for office before, yeah, if you true. recall, and yeah. uh, she's well respected in in Iowa as the Vilsacks are. So it'll just, and there are a number of others. I don't want to leave anyone out, but I, I think that this is uh, unwritten right now who the candidates will will be. But if Grassley, senior Grassley, is not in it, that opens up the whole race for both Democrats and Republicans because they would feel more confident with uh, Senator now uh, Senator Grassley not on the ticket. Well, and it also uh, wouldn't it trigger a power shuffle in the Senate uh, be, because of uh, just how much uh, gravitas Chuck Grassley carries with him and the leadership positions that he carries there? Absolutely, and he's he was a long time chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, and now he he went over to the Judiciary Committee because he was timed out as uh, you know ranking on the uh, uh, on the Finance Committee chairman. But those are two powerful. Mm -hmm. powerful committees, judiciary and, and finance. And he's uh, such an expert on a host of issues of uh, biofuels. Of course, he's Mr. Biodiesel and of course, corn ethanol. He was very uh, involved, continues to be involved under the uh, waiver issues, uh, et cetera. I know he's mentoring any Republican lawmaker that, 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 that you know, comes up. So he, he's, he's a good mentor. He's always had one of the best staffs uh, up, up on the Hill. And, you know, he gives a briefing every what Tuesday, he's been yeah. very liberal in his time on AgriTalk. So you could not ask for a better transparent Senator than, you know, Mr. Grassley. Yeah, indeed. Uh, answers our call anytime we place it. And like yes. I said, is on AgriTalk uh, at least once a month. So uh, Yeah. Well, uh, I remember when I flew to Iowa a lot and to the small airport in Waterloo, he would fly. He'd get on the plane. He'd talk to everybody on the plane. Oh, and yeah. He got into that airport and everybody would come up and talk with him. And he just didn't talk. He listened. And that's one of his secrets. Yeah, indeed. So it'll be interesting to see what path he chooses. Uh, and I would imagine he's going to have to make it uh, somewhat soon in order to uh, allow the runway for um, other candidates if he does, does decide not to run. Yeah, I think he'll probably repeat Monday. I think he's going to make it October and November this year. I think he said that before. So we'll see if there's a timeline change there. Okay, interesting. Um, before we go, uh, we probably need to acknowledge that we did have a couple of key uh, confirmations in the past week. Catherine Tai confirmed as U.S. Trade Representative and getting her work in right off the bat um, in the talks in Ch with China that we talked about earlier. Also, Michael Regan is confirmed as EPA Administrator. A lot of eyes will be on him in the next few weeks to see what he does with the Renewable Fuel Standard. Yeah, is he going to blend two years at once, as Reuters reported, what, last week? Uh, what will he do? I think they're waiting on the Supreme Court uh, case before he gives a definitive response on any additional, if any, uh, waivers to the Renewable Fuel Standard Program, RFS. 
Uh, on Catherine Ty, you talk about we have a super partisan Senate, but she was confirmed 98 to nothing. That shows you the bipartisan respect that they have for her because she's really one of them. And, and uh, she worked on the House side, uh, the uh, Ways and Means Committee staff, for a number of years and then was a career uh, employee for uh, more than a few years at the U.S. Trade Rep's office working for both the uh, Democrat and Republican administration. So that 98 to nothing vote is very revealing. It says that she is a, she doesn't just say she's bipartisan, she actually is bipartisan and she speaks Mandarin Chinese that will uh, get, have her in good stead when uh, translating uh, in her head uh, you know when she's you know listening to the Chinese her forte at USTR and up on the hill on the Ways and Means Committee staff uh, John was uh, enforcement of trade agreements not only in the writing of new ones relative to the US you know, Mexico-Canada agreement, she wrote a lot of that language uh, relative to the environmental and labor standards for Mexico. But when she was at USTR, she looked at enforcement relative to the China's entry into the WTO. So uh, she can get down into the weeds, you know, pretty thick. Yeah, it's, it's quite a once you put to have somebody who is known to be a, a, a fighter and a stickler for detail and who directly understands the nuance of the language, that she should be a pretty formidable uh, negotiator for the U.S. when it comes to China. Yes, and I think it was, yeah, yesterday, <laughs> these days are long, we had on AgriTalk, I emceed for Chip Flory, and one of our guests uh, yesterday was John Gilliland, and he is a trade policy expert lawyer, and he handled a number of these issues. So I, I would I would tell uh, the listeners and the viewers to go back and listen to Thursday morning's uh, AgriTalk and listen to what John and Randy Russell of the, of the yeah. Russell Group had to say on a host of issues because they bottom-lined a lot of the issues that we're talking about now. But I really got into uh, John relative to uh, China, and uh, he was very complimentary about Catherine uh, Tai, said she's a lot like Bob Lighthizer in being persnickety. Uh, he didn't think that we he, we would have a extension of the Trade Promotion Authority or Fast Track Authority before it expires July one, and uh, TPA is just the ability to uh, you know debate a new trade agreement without any amendment, so an up or down vote. I thought right. that was interesting, and he thought it was later rather than sooner on uh, the U.S. re-entering the Pacific Trade Pact, TPP or CPTPP as it's called. But uh, we discussed the Japanese uh, prime minister coming to town. They'll, he'll be the first international official to visit uh, Biden at the White House, and that's coming sometime in April. And I know Japan wants us to re-enter that uh, you know, Pacific Trade Pact. So you know that's going to be something to watch, John. What does the U.S. need? in order to change that accord to get the necessary eventual votes in Congress to pass that. Right, exactly. Yeah, there was a lot packed into that interview. So I yes. encourage folks to go back to the Thursday of this week, uh, AgriTalk AM show and go listen to that podcast because there was an awful lot packed into both that and the conversation with Randy Russell of the Russell Group. All right, uh, CFAP update. Checks any closer to uh, being delivered? 
I think they are, believe it or not. Now, watch them <laughs> prove me wrong. But, you know, when Vilsack first came in, he had indicated the CFAP 3, which was the December 21 passed, uh, you know, measure that was signed into law, I think, six days later at the White House. But that's the $13 billion for additional you know, $20 CFAP an acre payment, payments. Yeah. $20 an acre payment. I don't think they can change that $20 per acre, but they can change some other aspects of of uh, of that uh, language because Vilsack told us you recall on an AgriTalk interview a while back that uh, he wants to make sure all groups are represented in there so I think that's what they're really looking at but early on do, he said do, those payments would be made the end of March or early April and we're now into that time frame John yeah do do we have a sense of how much of that thirteen billion those twenty dollar an acre payments will eat up. <laughs> Oh, we do. I just can't remember right now, but we can easily find that out. Uh, it's yeah, a it's be interesting to see see how much wiggle room wiggle room they Vilsack have. has. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that bridges us into the other one. Re re recall, in the waning days of the Trump administration, USDA announced up to is the way they put it, two point three billion dollars in additional payments. That's why we call it CFAP AA, additional aid. Uh, Vilsack told us, he kept on mentioning now that could be increased. It has nothing to do with how much you drink while you're waiting for it. Chip, no, man. no. Okay. And he, say, he kept on saying around $3 billion, give or take. Uh, if so, that will allow USDA to look at other groups who didn't initially qualify for CFAP 1, 2, or 3, or could possibly either that program or the CFAP uh, 3 to give some aid to the biofuel sector, because he specifically brought that up as a challenge, if you will. Remember? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You mentioned biofuels multiple times in multiple interviews uh, over last week and the week before uh, yes. when asked specifically about the, the review of CFAP. So I would, if I were in the biofuels industry, I would take that as a very positive sign. I would. That's the signal at least we got because uh, he told us flat out he thinks Congress is challenging him to, to provide aid to the biofuel sector. That's almost word for word what he said. Yeah, and and has also mentioned repeatedly um, some specialty crops and, and other groups as well. And I would I would think that that would continue to include uh, contract growers, contract hog and poultry producers that were supposed to be um, ninety one percent of that CFAP AA. Yeah, where most of it would go to the poultry contract people, if yeah. I recall, the hog hog contract people would 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 have got a chunk, but by far most of that uh, two point three billion dollars would have gone to the contract poultry industry. I my hunch is that that could change somewhat, but uh, I have nothing definitive right now, John. All right, well, we'll continue to watch USDA sure. and watch for that announcement. All right, uh, in addition to that, where are you watching for Signal this week? This coming week, I'm just here, so so we're going to see new, more announcements of uh, USDA personnel at the undersecretary level. That's going to be key because what we heard uh, from the Russell Group rep you know, representative, Tiemann, uh, uh, Carla Tiemann, yeah, Carla Tiemann, was that uh, a number could be announced. I think we sh and once we get that, uh, we'll also have sometime in April the confirmation uh, hearing. An appointment uh, and and vote on the deputy, you know, secretary, uh, Jewel uh, Bronau. Uh, 
Uh, and that's going to be key because a number of the individuals will be part of Vilsack's equity commission that he mentioned. That's going to be very important of unrolling out how Vilsack and USDA is going to deal with the alleged uh, systemic uh, you know, problems in the uh, in in the you know racial uh, you know uh, kerfuffles, you know and and even more significant rather than kerfuffles, you know within USDA. So uh, players are important to watch out for, and the next few weeks we're going to see more people announced at USDA. All right, we'll be watching for it again. A reminder: if you're listening to the podcast, we record this live at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern every Friday afternoon, 1 p.m. Central, on the AgriTalk Facebook page, which means you can send us questions and comments as we're going along. So, join us next Friday uh, right here on the AgriTalk Facebook page, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central. Jim, as always, appreciate the insights. Anytime. All right, that wraps up this edition of DC Signal to Noise.